0: hi everybody i'm scott
1: hello i'm julie and this
0: is a good story is hard to find podcast
1: where two catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface oh
0: yeah lots of reality here is and there? Is, it's all over. It's in, oh. it's in London. We had to go to London to find well, this Well, I know reality. it's in London.
1: Yes. But <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much reality there is, but uh, we'll talk about it. I, I, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So this is, um, it's called Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich. This novel is the first of a series of uh, Peter Grant novels. But in the United States, it was published as Midnight Riot.
1: Yeah, I don't get that. I but. don't
0: get that either. In fact, I uh, I watched an interview of Ben Aronovich, the author, and mm-hmm. someone asked him, how did that happen? And he said, I really have no idea. He said that he, he was a brand-new author. That was his first book. Um, And when it got to the United States, that's what they wanted to do, and he had no power whatsoever to say yeah. no. And he said, I think it was a big mistake because – any momentum that it had from London, you know, um, right. you know, and now I get asked about that all the time. He said, <laughs> he said, you know, uh, yeah, so, um,
1: yeah, yeah, you have so little power unless you're a J.K. Rowling and it's your third or fourth book where you're a, you know, a giant. And I guess now he's more like that, because it's a long-running series. The, they call it the Rivers of London series. Rivers so. of
0: London, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. And Rivers of
0: London is such a perfect title, too. Mm-hmm.
1: It works so well. It
0: works really well, yeah.
1: They probably thought it sounded too pastoral.
0: <laughs> Maybe, you know. And um, I, I also, I listened to the audiobook, uh, because oh. you said I should. Yes. And my goodness, <laughs> um, it is amazing. Um, gosh, who read that thing? Um, I need to l- look up his name. Cobna Holdbrook Smith. Okay. Unbelievable narration. I mean, just absolutely terrific. Highly recommended.
1: <laughs> Most of the book he's reading as, with an accent, and I've heard him speak regularly, and he doesn't have this accent. You really?
0: Know? Wow. Yeah,
1: and mm. but this is kind of, you can tell the person is black, you can tell they're from a little bit lower class not not cockney but just you know of the of the people accent and um but then when it comes to doing um an upper class person like detective nightingale he is just spot on hmm. upper class white accent for a british guy and it's just i mean he is just phenomenal this yeah, narrator it's
0: just a home run mm-hmm. really really great Yeah, um, so yeah, so, uh, yeah, highly recommended. Um, and it is the first book in, I don't know how many, um, on Audible.
1: Eight books, maybe? Okay. Yeah. And there's some novellas, a, a novella or two, and there are a few short stories. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he's <laughs> also got a series of graphic novels that use uh, Detective Peter Grant as the main character, whose the point of view is told from. Hmm. There are a couple of the books. They're told from a different point of view. One is uh, Peter's cousin later on, and one is a guy in Germany.
0: Yeah, does that's what the, I I'd heard. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's an interesting book. I <laughs> I liked it. Um,
0: he said it was but, fun to look up the police procedures in Germany.
1: Yeah, and he okay. said he
0: said they all have forms for that in Germany. <laughs> There's a form <laughs> for everything in Germany, <laughs> of
1: course, <there> sir. <laughs>
0: uh, but
1: um, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of veering off course at this point in the podcast. But it, it, there I found these when there were maybe three of the books and got the audiobook. And I think this is a time when I was in Florida. It, maybe my sister was gone. And so, she asked me to come down and hang out with my mom while she was out of town. And um, I had enough time to listen to audiobooks pretty thoroughly. And I just devoured this one and immediately got the next two
0: and you introduced me to it
2: yeah
1: okay
0: yeah you introduced me to it and um yeah this is my second reading i haven't read past this yet but i do plan to i do enjoy it quite a Mm -hmm. bit um so yeah it it is a, a nine book series at the current time and um it centers around a person named peter grant who in this book is a fairly new um, constable who is trying to discern where in the police force he's going to end up, you know? So I guess there's this process there where you get to a certain point and then they assign you somewhere, you know, like, uh, there's lots of different divisions that you could end up in. But as he's trying to figure this out, he's on a, uh, murder scene or at a murder scene. And he's looking around trying to you know, make his mark so he can end up somewhere that's not a desk job, and uh, um, then someone says, "Hey," uh, or he he encounters someone who starts to tell him, "Hey, I've seen, I saw what happened," and uh, he's like, "Okay, well, what's your name?" And um, turns out that this thing that he's talking to is a ghost. And yeah,
1: he discovers he's transparent, <laughs> right. He discovers <laughs> he's
0: transparent, right. So, um, so from that moment forward, um, he's discovered that he has a talent that he didn't know that people had. and um then later on discovers that there is a division in the police department for which, People with that talent uh, excel <laughs> or in which, right? You know, it, it's a whole like supernatural section of the, the police department that well, you didn't know existed.
1: And that makes it sound as if there's a whole division and there isn't. There's one man okay. and that's Detective Nightingale.
0: One one guy. Yeah. One, yeah. one wizardly He is the fella. one
1: person and it's called the Folly. And that's where, that's also the name of the building that they live in, which is a big grand sounding building that at one point did have a lot of people. And nobody talks about or knows except Nightingale why there aren't all those people anymore. You do discover that in later books. And it's kind of just briefly referenced here, but not in a way that makes you notice it. And the th- interesting thing about you know Peter Grant is it, it seems as if, I mean, he's got the curiosity to notice things. Although, what it does seem as if, and maybe this is coming from other books, it's something you can be trained in. Hmm. You know, it's not just that he has this special talent that's suddenly shown. He is curious enough to talk to this person and he's able to see that, you know, something's weird. And the guy says, I'm, you know, I'm from such and so, I'm a ghost and blah, blah, blah. And here's what I saw that happened. But the other fun thing I like about this book is that he actually is assigned to this murder case not assigned to the murder case he's assigned as a very low new working constable just to be there patrolling Mm
2: -hmm. to
1: make sure that nothing's being bothered he's not there to investigate he's not there to do anything else but walk the beat and so it's while he's walking the beat that this person comes up and says i saw what happened i'll tell you and It's because of his curiosity that he notices other things. And so because he's such a new cop and his friend Leslie, who also is a new cop from the same class, is there and they they will talk about the case and they wind up being at a second murder that um, gets both of them drawn into it in the department more, Mm -hmm. um, that you hear about all the police procedures. Because at base, he is a policeman first. And I found it so interesting that there were all the ways of looking at things, and he always kind of fell back on. Because if there's one thing they teach you when you're learning how to do this, it's how to put a boot on somebody when this is happening so they don't jump up and hit you in the head or whatever. <laughs> right. And, yeah, um, yeah. and and Leslie will also know those things. Or even Nightingale
2: mm-hmm.
1: will talk about enforcing the Queen's peace. And so it's interesting to me how much research the author must have done into this in order to kind of really carry that off well.
0: Yeah. in that same interview, I mentioned uh, Germany and uh, he talked about, he says, yeah, I have several contacts in the police departments uh, in London and he is British. He must live in London. I don't know for Mm -hmm. sure, but, but he said, yeah, he talks to people all the time. He has, he has people he can go to, to ask questions and things. So you're right. He did Research the I heck figured out of he
1: it. He had to. And so yeah. I was saying he's the only one who's the member of the Folly until Peter becomes his apprentice. Yeah. But um, there is a housekeeper, Molly, who's extremely mysterious, mm-hmm. which is fun to discover. And there is inspe- uh what is he? Uh, is he, I can't remember his title, but Walid. And he's a oh, medical uh-huh. guy. Yeah, like he, maybe he's medical examiner or something. Right. Made. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And he teaches classes and he does other stuff, but he's fascinated by the otherworldly, supernatural aspect, and connecting it with real science. As a medical guy, you know, he's he's looking into things and going, "This is your brain on magic," you know, because if you use magic too much, your your brain kind of like. Does a Swiss cheese situation and you die. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, that's an interesting aspect of somebody who's firmly in the real world but says, Oh, this is something that's really happening, let's research it. Yeah, and Peter also brings that sensibility into what's uh Nightingale's point of view from the folly. And Nightingale's just not up to date, he's been around for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, so, he's been
0: around a while, and I think, yeah. um I think it says that, yeah, Peter Grant is, like, the first recruit, I guess, for the Folly or whatever you call that department, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, like, 70 years. Yeah. So it's been a long, long time that um, Nightingale has been alone. Or actually, I don't know how long he's been alone, but it's been a long time since they've got someone new.
1: Yeah, and they have... um there are a lot of things that I do like about the way they do this in terms of they just drop little hints and they don't answer every question. Mm. Every question doesn't need to be answered for this book, but the idea that Nightingale um, looks about 40, but he's much, much older. Mm. A few people allude to this. And the fact that there hasn't been a new recruit for 70 years, but Nightingale's the only one who's been around or – Nightingale, if he was 40, would have had to have been a recruit more than 70. You know, that time period doesn't work out with the 70 years since a new recruit. So, you're going, oh, this is a bit mysterious, but it's let go because the action of the novel is carrying you forward to solve the murders.
0: Right, right. So, yeah. So, that's the basic uh, premise. And I don't know how much deeper we want to get into details before entering into spoiler territory. But it, it's kind of got a tone, not unlike a Neil Gaiman book, mm-hmm. um, not unlike a Harry Potter. It, it's sort of a mashup of those, I guess. Um, you know, uh, Harry Potter's mentioned in it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there was a oh. funny line in that that just made me laugh out loud when I heard it. But it said something like, you know, I- isn't this just like Harry Potter? And he said, no. And he said, why? And he said, well, it's because Harry Potter is a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. oh. okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, and it is firmly set mm-hmm. as much as a book like this can be, it is set in the real world.
0: It is. And, and, and Neil Gaiman yeah.
1: will take you to other worlds mm. to do his thing. Very and true. Um, mm-hmm. so will Harry Potter or most of the other books like that. It's like, oh, there's the muggles and there's mm-hmm. the invisible world. This is like, no. This is streets of London.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um,
1: this is the real policing world. This is things happening to people. but So, this is really set in the real world, even though there's all these layers of things that nobody knows about. And of course, in that way, it's very much like being a Christian or anybody of real Mm -hmm. faith, you know. Oh, that's cool.
0: That's a nice observation right there. That's neat.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I was just thinking It's, it's we see the world and we look outside and we see trees and we see all this stuff and but there are layers and layers of things going on underneath. Mm. And anybody who's a devout person of real faith knows there are connections you make with things that can't be explained very well to anybody who doesn't see them. There are things Mm. that happen that you go, I can see these three things are connected, but to somebody from the outside, it's a coincidence or Mm. whatever.
0: Yeah, right.
1: You know, so it's just, um, of course, not like the book, but that's what it's playing on. And everybody's ready to believe that, you know. It's okay when it's a book and it's about magic. They don't want to believe it if it's for real.
0: Well, I just love that observation. I'm just sitting here thinking about it. I love it. Um, When I was looking at some reviews of this book, one of the appeals is how it is set in London. You know, like um, the places that he talks about are real. And, you know, um, you know, Charing Cross and, uh, Covent Gardens, I think is what Mm -hmm. it was called. You know, things like, yeah. So all these places are, uh, places that are really in London. And, um, apparently he's accurate enough that it's a huge appeal for his novels. He really takes the time to, to really place it in the, in the real world. And, uh, readers seem to just love it.
1: Well, and. Clearly, and I can't remember if this is actually Peter Grant's character mentions this and maybe in a different book, or if this is Ben Aronovich, somebody studied architecture. Hmm. And so what you'll see in these books continually coming up are snarky comments about modern architecture, (laughs) sucking the soul out of things. Oh, interesting. And so as you go on and read further into the series, that becomes really more and more apparent because he'll talk about well they were in this building that was made for this but you could see where somebody had gone in and thought maybe they should do this with it for modern times and so they had <laughs> ripped this part off and oh, left you with this thing wow. and that's one of the things i've i've loved the most is reading those comments about stuff like that because i tend to feel like that about new architecture
2: yeah, a yeah. lot
1: of the time where he's okay so he says city of westminster's magistrates court is around the back of Victoria Station on the Horse Ferry Road. It's a bland box of a building built in the 1970s. It was considered to be so lacking in architectural merit that there was talk of listing it so that it could be preserved for posterity as an awful warning inside the waiting areas maintained the unique combination of cramped busyness and barren inhumanity that was the glory of british architecture in the second half of the 20th century so i mean you cannot get more pointed than that
2: <laughs>
0: for sure
1: and it just keeps going the whole way oh through.
0: that's something that reminds yeah. me of um i have not been to paris but my wife uh, has um, but there is well, this building in paris That is like a skyscraper, big black block skyscraper that apparently Mm -hmm. you can see from anywhere in town.
1: Oh, how awful.
0: And it's like, it's, you know, you have this, this beautiful architecture all around and then you've got this modern thing. The Um, Finger of Doom. It it looks like a, (laughs) it looks like a monolith from 2001. But yeah, people comment about that all the time, I guess. And then in London, they have... Like, you know, when I see pictures of London, there there are a few really modern buildings. I'm I'm thinking of one, I'm trying to think of what it looks like. It's kind of like an acorn or something mm-hmm. um, that, that doesn't look like it belongs there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then they have a big Ferris wheel kind of a thing. And
1: Oh, yeah, the eye. The yeah, London that's what eye. that is.
0: Okay. And then, of course, Big Ben and that stuff, you know, all these landmarks. And, and I haven't been to London either, but I, I sure hope to go.
1: Oh, yes, you yeah. must.
0: Yeah. You would love it. Cool.
1: Also yeah. Paris.
0: Also Paris France.
1: <laughs> yeah, Paris France.
0: <laughs> uh, too good. Too good. But yeah, so that's what this book is. Um, it is fun. It is a fun, yeah. fun book.
1: It is them discovering who is the murderer of this string of murders that also have a side effect of causing chaos and violence all around the area where it's going on. hmm and it's really good. I'd forgotten a couple things of it, and I've read this probably at least three times. And, um, yeah. And, and ha- it's just, have you it's read the whole series? Um, all except maybe the last couple of books. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it a lot. And it's it's nice because, you know, you said Neil Gaiman. And I'm like, I love Neil Gaiman, but he can often have just kind of nasty things in there. Hmm. Things that make you cringe really and this has some cringe-worthy stuff, but you're kept distant enough from it—the way the author writes it—that you don't feel like it's stinging you in the brain. If you mm. know what I mean. Sure,
2: sure, yeah.
1: Um, things like the the first set of murders in that family house. Mm-hmm. That's probably to me the worst that's described, and even that you don't have to stop and visualize it. He doesn't drag you into it. I think.
2: Yeah.
0: That's okay. just my feeling. Yeah, I, I don't disagree.
1: And that's yep. a good author. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he lets you see what's happening, but he doesn't make you have to have the emotion for it.
0: Uh huh. Sure.
1: So. Um,
0: yeah. Right.
1: And so in that way, I I like them a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good. Yep. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to um, reading some more of them too. I, I I see myself continuing in it.
1: Yeah, they're just fun.
0: Yeah. Very fun. Very fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, let's step into spoiler territory. Okay. And talk a little bit about why the rivers of London. Why is it called that? Um I thought this was a this is one of the coolest aspects about this book is um the rivers of London are gods, right? You mm-hmm. have uh the goddess of the river Thames. Um well you have Mama Thames and and uh Mother Thames and Father Thames. Yeah. You know, the old man of the river. And unfortunately they don't get along very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, good stuff.
1: Oh, right. That's the subplot of mm-hmm. um, their kind of feuding.
0: Right. And uh, The people
1: who worship them are kind of feuding, so that yeah. has to be set, settled so that everything will settle down again.
0: That's right. That's right. And, um, yeah, I just thought that that was a really enjoyable thing. And then there's, um, like, uh, a daughter of Mother Thames named Beverly, and mm-hmm. she was a fascinating character, I thought. Um, a
1: romantic interest,
0: yes, and a romantic interest, possibly, yeah, and and powerful, powerful as heck. Yeah. Um, there, there was a scene where um they were in trouble, her and uh, Peter Grant, and um, he, he said, "Can't you do something magic?" and and she said, um, "Well, I need your permission." And and he said, "Well, I I give you permission. You know, whatever you need to do." Yeah. and then I love the magic that happened right there. You know, she put her ear to the ground and you know how he described the feeling suddenly feeling stuff um Mm -hmm. i wonder if i have it highlighted because i just thought it was it was really cool um let's see you've got to say it's okay she said and he said what and she said that's the agreement said beverly you've got to say it's okay one of the window panes cracked this is the trouble they're in it's okay i said do what you have to do beverly threw herself down and pressed her cheek to the floor i saw her lips moving I felt something pass through me, a sensation like rain, like the sound of boys playing football in the distance, the smell of suburban roses and newly washed cars, evening television flickering through net curtains. What is she doing? asked the mother. She is praying for us, yes? Sort of, I said. Shh, said Beverly, sitting up. I'm listening. What for? Something flew in through the window, pinged off the wall, and fell into my lap. It was the cover off a fire hydrant. Beverly saw me examining it and gave me an a- apologetic shrug. <laughs> I, I just love it. I love that. There's this, this thing that he's talking about all the time. Um, and now I'm going to not have that the vestige, word. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's, he talks about that all the time. This yep. kind of a permeating thing that's like through everything. You know what I mean? And, I, and like I love that. It's like the
1: sense of, it's like. Whatever was happening a lot during time, the impressions of that were absorbed by the materials. So mm-hmm. rock or stone buildings yes. or yes. Uh, even people will have the impressions of vestigia. Mm-hmm. And one, I think that's one of the things that it turns out practically anybody can do if they're trained for what to do. It's just you have to be able to discern, is this something I'm feeling or is this something that's really here? Yeah. And yeah. that's when when you were reading what he his impressions were. I was like, that's the way vestigia is described. It's just a, an impression. I love it. I love and that it. was a great one. And mm-hmm. um, I was thinking again about, um, okay, so I have to, full disclosure, I just got done with a three-day silent retreat. So, <laughs> I could be a little more steeped in some of this stuff than uh, is healthy for, to talk about on a podcast. But... Uh-huh. It did make me think about the fact that you're kind of thinking and reflecting and everything, and this happens every day anyway, where you're just like, well, is that real? Did I make that up?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is this really something God's trying to nudge me toward? Or am I just, would I like to do that? It's that kind of the vestigia. It's kind of that I'm getting a sense of something. I feel like maybe this is something I should do, but I can't tell. Um, mm. And maybe that's not a connection that makes sense
0: no sure does it makes sense does to me it, mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely absolutely you know it's something that you can't quite touch right you know right um and i have another quote here that i loved and it has yeah. to do with this so um this is him uh nightingale has been wounded and then um it says i remembered this is peter grant talking then I remembered the silver whistle in the top pocket of my uniform jacket. I fumbled it out and put it in my mouth and blew as hard as I could. A police whistle on Bow Street. For a moment I felt a connection, like a vestigium with the night, the streets, the whistle and the smell of blood and my own fear with all the other uniforms of London down the ages who wondered what the heck they were what the hell they were doing out so late. <laughs> Or it could have just have been me panicking. It's an easy mistake to make. Yes. So, um... That's so
1: exactly it.
0: I love it. You know, that's, that's yeah. just... Yeah.
1: That's perfect.
0: It is just a re- really well put.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I also like the... Um, when you're talking about the river gods, I had a bit of a section here where um, Nightingale is explaining to Peter because... Um, Peter's like, wait, what, river spirit? And he says, "Uh, geni loci, he -hmm. said, the spirit of a place, the goddess of the river, if you like. Although not the goddess of the Thames herself, Nightingale explained, because of her taking a direct part in any aggro, aggravation, Mm -hmm. would be a violation of the agreement. I asked whether this was the same agreement as the agreement, or a different agreement entirely, because people are always talking about these agreements. Like Beverly just did when she says, "Like you have to give permission." It's part of the agreement. Mm-hmm. There are a number of agreements," said Nightingale. A great deal of what we do is making sure everyone keeps them to them. There's a goddess of the river," I said. "Yes, Mother Thames," he said patiently. And there's a god of the river, Father Thames. Are they related? No, he said, and that's part of the problem. Are they really gods? I never worry about the theological questions, said Nightingale. They exist, they have power, and they can breach the Queen's peace. That makes them a police matter. Mm-hmm. And I, I marked it because I really loved the police matter part, you know.
2: Yeah, right. Um,
1: and then just a few pages later, he's being sent off, uh, Peter's being sent off to talk to Mother Thames. And he says, uh, Peter says... And what do I and my unique insight say to Mrs. Thames? Find out what the problem is and see if you can find an amicable solution, said Nightingale. And if I can't, then I want you to remind her that whatever some people may think, the Queen's peace extends to the whole kingdom. <laughs> and so you never, ever escape the police keep order
2: mm, right, with right.
1: everyone. And this includes all the agreements that have been made through time with whatever the the loci, or the river gods, or whatever you want to call them. Because I loved him going, I don't worry about the theological stuff. They just have to obey the Queen's peace.
0: Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, love it.
1: And that's always the basis in reality, too. That it's really in London, it's really about policing, it's really, mm-hmm. even though all this is as a um, uh, detective inspector Seawall, who says weird bollocks. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. he doesn't like all that. He's strictly down to earth. He acknowledges the folly exists. He doesn't like it, but he knows sometimes they need it. Because there's stuff that he just has to be dealt with.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I do love that about it, too. But it's all these police procedures and stuff being followed and, and, you know, trying to solve a mystery and stuff. It's just that the mystery has like a supernatural explanation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah. But those have that
0: same, those same rules. I mean, there, yeah. there are rules to that, too. You know, in a magic yes. system or whatever. The 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 world he's built here has rules.
1: And what's interesting too about those gods when he says Father Thames and Mother Thames is Father Thames is strictly based in English history. Right. When he goes to, you know, the the like it's almost like a gypsy camp where they are and sees him. And then at other times, you know, when he's going back through history and then Mother Thames is strictly based in almost like an um, African-Caribbean uh, black experience because nobody was taking care of that part of the Thames. And she tells the story of how she became Mother Thames. But so her influence is that of all the immigrants who have taken, who live in that part of London and have taken over that part of England just by living there. mm mm-hmm. And so it's funny, it's a a great way to kind of look at what does it mean to be English these days? I mean, that's not why he's doing it, but that's part of the reality that resonates when you read about these two sets of gods and
2: Hmm.
1: their locations they've set up for themselves and everything. She's in the warehouses and the dock areas, and he's up there in the English countryside. Hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's really great, too. And then, um, you know, when he first meets Mama Thames um i thought it was an interesting detail that um she asked him you know would you like some tea and it says (laughs) i declined politely nightingale had been very specific don't eat or drink anything under her roof do that he'd said and she'll have her hooks in you yeah so I, i like that aspect of it too so there's just all this stuff going on um really great
1: Yeah, because it's all the stuff that we kind of know of it, even from just vampire movies, where you have to be invited to come in, Mm -hmm. you have to have permission for different things. And, um, of course, this goes back to fairy tale type etiquette. Yes,
2: yes.
0: That we've learned in old
1: folktales. He's been really good about sticking with that, but showing it in the modern context of what's going on. Yes. One thing I really liked about this, and I've always loved this, is that, Peter himself is, as you said, he's kind of uniquely set up for this. And I don't know if it's because he has a talent specifically, although he does develop the talent, but it's because of just who he is as a person. And one of those strengths is one that people don't think of as a strength, and it's his tendency to distraction. Mm -hmm. So Leslie complains about this. And he says, why are you in the job? Because I'm really good at it, said Leslie. You're not that good a copper, I said. Yes, I am, she said. Let's be honest. I'm bloody amazing as a copper. And what am I? Too easily distracted? I am not. New Year's Eve, Trafalgar Square, big crowd, bunch of total wankers pissing in the fountain. Remember that? Asked Leslie. Wheels come off, wankers get stroppy, And what were you doing? I was only gone for a couple of seconds, I said. You were checking what was written on the lion's bum, said Leslie. (laughs) I was wrestling a couple of drunken chavs, and you were doing historical research. Do you want to know what was on the lion's bum, I asked? No, said Leslie. I don't want to know what was written on the lion's bum, or how siphoning works, or why one side of Floral Street is 100 years older than the other side. (laughs) you don't think any of that's interesting? Not when I'm wrestling chavs, catching car thieves or attending a fatal accident, said Leslie. I like you. I think Mm. you're a good man, but it's like, you don't see the world the way a copper needs to see the world. It's like you're seeing stuff that isn't there. Mm. And he does describe time after time getting distracted. Mm. And usually other people point out he's getting distracted, but it's, what he's doing is paying attention to all the details, just different details than a normal cop would.
0: Right. Which suits him for the other stuff.
1: Which suits him for all the other stuff. He's mm-hmm. the one who says, that's interesting when they're in the house that the vampires have taken over. When he picks up the alarm clock and this stuff like white sand pours out, he's like, hmm. <laughs> and when he discovered he, later, he takes that curiosity and uses his knowledge of, like, scientific research, and not that he's a scientist, but police procedure, really, and discovers, oh, if magic has been done near something that has a silicon chip, it destroys that thing.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs>
1: um, so, it's he does take it and do something practical with it, but it's because he notices those details. And so, um, there's another time when he's with um, Mama Thames, the, the goddess of the Thames. And she's kind of putting a glamour over him. And she Mm -hmm. says something about, she knows his father, who's a jazz musician. And she says, he says, you know him? And she goes, well, I know the Mississippi River, and that's jazz. All (laughs) of us rivers are part of each other. And he starts thinking about the Mississippi River, and what would a god of Mississippi River be like? And he distracts himself with all those wonderings, Mm -hmm. and it, it breaks the glamour. (laughs) <laughs> she gets kind of annoyed and goes, oh, I realized my distraction. I've broken the glamour <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> that she
1: had laid on him. Oh, and so it's, yeah. it's his natural curiosity, but it's being used for benefit for all these things. And that's, again, that same thing of we're all made to be very different people. And, of course, what we experience also affects that. But all those talents, even if other people don't see them as talents, can be very useful for something that no one can predict,
2: mm
0: yeah, yeah, I love that, you know, and that that kind of touches on you know being in the right place at the right time too, mm-hmm. and feeling like maybe you were meant to be there, mm-hmm. um you know your talents are perfect for the place you're at, and um he actually mentions that too right right at the very beginning he you know the the murder investigation is described, and then it says. You know, they just needed a couple of mugs to guard the crime scene until shift change, which is what you mentioned earlier. Mm
2: -hmm. And it
0: says, which is how I came to be standing around Covent Garden in Covent Covent? Uh, Covent Garden. Okay, around Covent Garden in a freezing wind at six o'clock in the morning, and why it was me that met that ghost. Sometimes I wonder whether if I'd been the one that went for coffee and not Leslie May. My life would have been much less interesting and certainly much less dangerous. Could it have been anyone or was it destiny? When I'm considering this, I find it helpful to quote the wisdom of my father who once told me, who knows why the bleeps anything happens. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's just good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we feel that in our lives all the time. I do anyway. It's just like, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think that a lot lately. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah. But it's neat. It's, um, but it's, it's like you're saying, you know, there's, this is a person finding his vocation. You know?
1: Yes. That's the, that's Mm. the good way to say it. I knew you'd come up with it, Scott. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome. But yeah, (laughs) but that's exactly what it is, you know, and, and we all go through similar things. And, um, I think the, the lucky ones of us, have the match between um what uh what we're good at and what we do for a living
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so and sometimes the vocation is somewhere else sometimes it is um what you do for a living may or may not be the best match for you it's what you've you're got to do and you're supporting your family and everything but the vocation is in something else yeah. How you get along with the people you're near or, mm-hmm. you know, the way your family interacts with everybody. I, I, you know, there's so many ways that our talents come out even when other conditions aren't ideal.
0: Sure. Yep. Yep. Agreed. You know, church jobs too, you know. hmm You know, things that you do outside of work. All kinds right. of stuff. Yep.
1: Volunteer things, all that.
0: hmm All of it. Yeah.
1: How did you like how Isaac Newton got used in this? Well, that was
0: interesting. <laughs> yeah. So Isaac Newton is like the inventor or discoverer. Um, how would we put this? Yeah. It's like the he founder systemi- of magic. Yeah.
1: He said the way they said it was he invented modern science and systemized magic.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, because done. Peter
1: goes, Can you do both those things? And he goes, Well, that's the nature of genius, says Nightingale. <laughs> you can. Because they don't yeah. seem to go together, mm-hmm. but of course, what the book is showing is when you have Doctor Walid. Doctor Walid, that's who it is. You have Doctor Walid doing his autopsies on people and going, "Oh, well, so here's what we discover."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he can't explain the magic part or you know how it's done necessarily, but he can look at the results and go, "Okay, so this means we have to be careful with this, and maybe I can come up with something that will help with that." Yeah, as a precaution or something, and. And Peter, with his investigations of, you know, why is there white sand coming out of this? And why doesn't my phone work now that magic has been used near it? My cell phone and that kind of thing. And what can we do about it? Oh, take the battery out so it's not working. Or, um, And so, of course, in that way, it made me think of, like, the church with religion and science.
0: Yeah, I love Where,
1: that connection. Yeah, people, That's great. Yeah, people from the outside mm-hmm. look at it and go, well, of course, the church hates science. And, like... Do you know how many priests were scientists? (laughs) Do you know how much modern genetics, the Big Bang Theory, all these things are directly from priests? And the church is like, super good. It's truth. God is ultimate truth. This shows us something of who God is. Um, and so, I mean, and, and I don't want to talk about specifics. This is just a general overview of this is the attitude. And so I loved the Isaac Newton and then the way they were showing this being applied in the book. I was like, this is just like the oh, the yeah. church in that way.
0: Yeah, I love it. I mean, that, that is really great. Uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's it. You know, Isaac Newton is a um, scientist and magician. Yeah. You know, so, it it, and that's the way that scientists were all the way up until recent times. Yeah. You know, they were both. And uh, it made perfect sense, and it still does. But somehow, somehow, I think that the uh, zeitgeist or the the common knowledge, in quotes, says that uh, you're one or the other.
1: Yeah, the narrative has been changed. And Mm -hmm. who is controlling the narrative? Yeah. And... It's clearly not the Catholic Church who's continually going. No, really, for real these guys. No,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> we're we're all good with science. Yeah, I mean, Pope Francis, get the vaccine, everybody, for COVID nineteen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you
1: yep. know, we're n- sure. not against that stuff. Uh, we might not like how it's being used sometimes. Science. Yeah,
0: I think uh, the Catholic Church does that a lot, where they say, "Should we be doing this?" You know, it's a yeah. good thing to ask society. You know. Look at what the cost of this is. Is this something that we should be doing? And um but that's not anti science. That's simply that's that's a moral question. That doesn't say that we need to um not have an internal combustion engine or something like that. You know what I mean?
1: Right. It's prudence. Right. It's saying because we can do this, should we do this? Right,
0: and it's wisdom. Do, yeah, do
1: we yeah. yeah. Do mm-hmm. we know enough about this thing? Do we know how it affects human beings and who they really are? Because that's the church always cares about, are we respecting every human being?
2: Mm.
1: Are we giving them the dignity because they are all made in the image of God? Yeah, And that's what they're measuring everything against. And so sometimes what society wants doesn't take that into account. And so then you're looked at as a naysayer because you're against whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and you're looked at as against science, but that's not what it is. It's like if you're yeah. if you're crushing people to get at the goal, it's not good to do that. It right. just isn't. Yeah, yet. there might
1: be another way. And, and the way that the church might at least propose or point to might be a way that people are like, I don't like this way. This is hard. It takes longer. It does whatever it is. Um, but it's the way that respects everyone. And so mm-hmm. sometimes you're called upon to do the harder thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So. Yep. And those questions need to be asked. Somebody needs to be asking those questions. Right. (laughs) Not enough people stop and and wait.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Agreed. But I love, I love that thought that, yeah, here's Isaac Newton, you know, presented in that way. And I thought, I thought that was cool, but now to connect it in that way is just, I, I really love that thought, you know, so the The presentation of a character who's both of those things, which is what we believe is normal, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it was normal throughout history until lately, right? So, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it two things that see, that modern society sees as exact opposites, right? But they intersect. They do, and in ways that can't be explained, mm-hmm. you know, by. Yep if science can't explain anything then it's not real and then of course we know that's not true
0: we do yeah absolutely yeah. we do no question yeah so yeah just um uh, and i'm trying to think of where else to go in this book but it's it's just so fun i just really mm-hmm. enjoyed the creativity um you know not knowing what's happening next you know although there is this this uh Uh, there's rules in the magic and there's rules in science, you know, so they're, they're related in a way, but that's not unlike Catholicism either. (laughs) You know, when when we think, you know, it's not uh, free of rules or free of, uh, yeah, laws, I guess. Um, Sure. So, um, but that's, that's kind of a similar thing. Um, Well,
1: and everything he used, he did that really great thing of everything that got introduced, even casually got used later. And especially this time, I was really able to appreciate uh, the Mr. Punch story. And this is, I don't know if you've encountered Mr. Punch, Punch and Judy before. I, I have.
0: The only other place that I've encountered it was actually Neil Gaiman. Um, okay. In, in some of his stuff. So.
1: There's a Diana Wynne-Jones story that mm-hmm. um, does it. And I can't remember the name of the book right now. It's a children's book. And mm-hmm. there are just references to it here and there, like Agatha Christie will mention it because it's so very British, even though I guess the original stories were Italian, Punchinello and all that. And I'm just like, I never understood it not being British and growing up with it. I was like, this doesn't sound like anything that's fun to watch this guy hitting the little, uh, the little Judy with the stick and all this kind of thing. (laughs) And um, when they're telling the story in greater detail, I've always found it interesting in this book. And then this time, I really noticed when at one point Nightingale says, well, he's not following the script exactly. We haven't seen pretty Polly anywhere. And Peter points out, well, there's so many tellings of these stories. Who knows which one he's picking? And I'm like, see, that's the clue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And of course, it's Leslie. It's pretty Polly. Right, and Leslie right. Unless herself doesn't even know it. Mm-hmm. But it's the thing, It's he, he'll he do this. He'll just drop these little things in there that are just part of a conversation and or little detail. And like Peter uh, bringing Toby home, the little dog who had bitten off the uh, nose of the guy.
0: Uh-huh, yeah.
1: Um, and because nobody else is there to take care of Toby. So, Toby just winds up living with him. Well, Toby is hugely important later in kind of uh, stopping Molly from attacking him. Hmm. Because Molly loves Toby so much that when Toby gets in the way and is like, You're going to have to go through me, even though he's a little terrier, to get to Peter, she kind of comes to herself and is ups- very upset and leaves, you know, mm, yeah. runs away. Right. And um, I like him going, I, I really should have gotten a bigger dog, but I'm like, Toby's just who you needed. He <laughs> senses these problems.
0: Yep. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. But yeah. Because otherwise, the- yeah, go ahead. No, the, the sensing of it, it's, that's great. You know, so that Peter senses stuff and the dog senses stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yep. And I liked, yes. you know, the, those parts, you know, where Nightingale was, you know, trying to teach him, you know, he says, <laughs> okay, so what do you feel right now? You know, and he's like, oh, I'm trying to feel what I feel. Let's see. What do I feel? And then suddenly he'd get like a whiff of something, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I remember it was like old sweat. <laughs> or something mm-hmm. like that. He would, he's like, hmm, yeah, there's something here. There's something going on here. And then um, there was a a ghost judge. <laughs> remember. Yeah, I know. I'd forgotten
1: him. Yeah. 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 And
0: then, uh, yeah, he'd need to do a warrant, a ghost warrant. That was all good stuff.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. He takes his payment in power from the light. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it was cool. You know, that says, yeah, give him what he needs. <laughs> He's like, all yeah. right, here.
1: Okay. That's here's some light. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Yes. Very cool. Um,
1: yeah. There were all, there were so many fun details. I mean, we've just been talking about the big things, of course. And I guess if you're listening to this, you've already read mm. the book, but yeah. it's, it's so much fun. And until you, requested to read it and i was like okay let's do it and see what's there i found all these things of course that just were kind of interesting to think about that we've been discussing so that's part of what makes the story and the series work is he keeps it all true to the world that's been set up and he's not afraid to kind of let things mingle and see what happens the science and the magic and the um, the police work and the supernatural and the, you know, all the things it's, it, and he's, he's very skillful at it.
0: Hmm. Very skillful. It's, it's, uh, it's really great. Um, I, I really enjoyed it just, just quite a bit. You know, I like the tone of it. I like the details. Um, it, it's really just a good one.
1: Yeah, and eventually, I think it's the very end of the second book, which introduces a story arc that goes on for the next few books. Um, mm. But the next book is really fun because it looks at jazz. Oh, cool. And, of course, this is a connection to Peter's father in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you see more of his parents and everything, but it's also unconnected to anything else going on. And, like I say, at the very end of it, something comes up that becomes an overarching story arc that's always there and being pursued. Hmm. But, of course, there are either subplots or a main plot of a book where, like, that's kind of on hold. And he explores all kinds of things. He explores, you know, the what is really a fairy the mm-hmm. Faye.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: a kind of fairy that Tolkien would approve of. Oh, nice. Who always said, you know, these aren't little Tinkerbell type things. These are big um, and possibly dangerous creatures. It's, I mean, he looks at all kinds of big things from British folklore in yeah. that way, in this book's way. So yeah, it's, that's, it's, I like it.
0: It's a very cool way to do this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Do we yeah. ever get to meet the god of the Mississippi River?
1: No, he's strictly in London. Okay. Or in the British countryside. He's not yeah. left England, so.
0: Well, it sounds like that's a book to write in the future.
1: I, that would be fun to hear about the American side. Yeah. Of, you do meet, in some of the other books, you meet um, someone from the FBI who's sent over, because a victim is a highly connected American. Oh, cool. Who becomes, who who learns about all this stuff just through the investigation, And winds up becoming kind of a regular uh, character who's consulted sometimes. So, of course, as with any series, you know, you expand your group of regulars. But Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, definitely. They're fun.
0: That's great. So, uh, one thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned. Did you know that um, our friends Simon Pegg and Nick Frost have a company that bought the rights to these books?
1: I knew it had been bought a while back, but they haven't done anything with nope, it, No, right? nothing
0: that I've seen, but it's only been a couple of years.
1: Oh, okay. Um,
0: so hopefully it's in development, but I haven't seen anything that oh, says that it is. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that
1: be fun? Yeah,
0: and their their company was new, too. They they did um, a series on, was it Netflix or Amazon? I don't remember. But it starred Nick Frost, and Simon Pegg was in it, but just barely. Yeah. Um, but it had to do with ghosts and uh like I a ghost you, hunting thing.
1: Okay. I think yeah. you told me about that and I think yeah. I couldn't get it then and then I forgot it, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. It wasn't superior
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. but it was
0: pretty mm-hmm. good. Um, so I I'm, I'm still hoping. I just haven't heard anything new, but I I do know that they bought the rights and I, I saw a thing from Nick Frost saying how excited they were to get it and um I think that you know they, they were hoping to do like a you know eight or ten episodes type of situation.
1: Okay, in the first yeah.
0: book kind of thing. So work. Uh, yeah, so we'll see if they get to do oh. that. I imagine I imagine uh, they need money, isn't that right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to yes. write a
0: check, is what I'm yes. guessing where they're at. Um,
1: write the script. Yeah. Get it all together, and then of course, if that was a couple of years ago, COVID happened. So right, right. That slows everything down.
0: Yeah. So I imagine, I mean, do they, I don't know, I don't know how this stuff works, but if you're doing, developing something like this, do you go ahead and write the scripts or do you just sort of say, okay, this is kind of how it's going to go. And then I you try know. and find money and, cause you need money to pay people to write the script, right? Or do you write the script yeah, first to have a I don't think you need thing? Yeah. It,
1: that much money. I mean, sure. I don't think script writers are paid yeah.
0: You don't need Tons. a million dollars, right? Right. Yeah.
1: But you've got to, yeah, and you have to figure out who would be Peter Grant, and I think that's tough. Yeah. Nightingale's easier. You pick mm-hmm. like Ian McKellen, and or well, I guess it has to be somebody <laughs> younger yeah. since he looks about 40. Right. But, um, yeah, and, and, of course, you've got all these fans out there, so it just depends um, mm-hmm. on if they accept it. So it has to be pretty good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. So hopefully it hopefully it works out. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> you bet, you bet.
1: I'd give it a try.
0: I would. I certainly would. Yep. All right. Anything else you'd like to say about uh, Midnight Riot slash Rivers of London?
1: <laughs> I think I said a lot. All right. So no. All right. No, I'm <laughs> good. Very cool. You?
0: No, I'm good. Okay. I just enjoyed it. Uh, give it a read if you haven't. That's great. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I'm going to enjoy our next episode, too. Because there's this TV show that people may have heard of called Star Trek. (laughs) And uh, we're going to talk about three of the original episodes. Love it.
1: That's right. City
0: on the Edge of Forever, Enemy Within, and Balance of Terror. I love it. All
1: three, I think, are well. Well, certainly City on the Edge of Forever is really well known. And I think the other two are well known as good episodes.
2: Yeah that people so
1: will say oh that's a good one yeah so um yeah i'm looking forward to that so it was unanimous on the city of the edge of forever and then each of us picked another episode <laughs> yeah. to talk about so very cool
0: it was yep. difficult
1: that'll narrowing be fun down. that'll be yep. fun stuff yep. <laughs> all
0: right me too okay. all right well thanks for listening everyone
1: yeah it's been a lot of fun we'll talk yeah. to you in a couple of weeks and
0: have a great one bye-bye
1: yeah bye-bye <laughs>
3: Chapter 1. Material Witness. It started 1.30 on a cold Tuesday morning in January when Martin Turner, street performer and, in his own words, apprentice gigolo, tripped over a body in front of the west portico of St Paul's at Covent Garden. Martin, who was none too sober himself, at first thought the body was that of one of the many celebrants who had chosen the piazza as a convenient outdoor toilet and dormitory. Being a seasoned Londoner, Martin gave the body the London once over, a quick glance to determine whether this was a drunk, a crazy or a human being in distress. The fact that it was entirely possible for someone to be all three simultaneously is why Good Samaritanism in London is considered an extreme sport like base jumping or crocodile wrestling. Martin, noting the good quality coat and shoes, had just pegged the body as a drunk when he noticed that it was in fact missing its head. As Martin noted to the detectives conducting his interview, it was a good thing he'd been inebriated because otherwise he would have wasted time screaming and running about, especially once he realized he was standing in a pool of blood. Instead, With the slow, methodical patience of the drunk and terrified, Martin Turner dialled 999 and asked for the police. The police emergency centre alerted the nearest incident response vehicle and the first officers arrived on the scene six minutes later. One officer stayed with the suddenly sober Martin while his partner confirmed that there was a body and that, everything else being equal, it probably wasn't a case of accidental death. They found his head six metres away where it had rolled behind one of the neoclassical columns that fronted the church's portico. The responding officers reported back to control, who alerted the area murder investigation team, whose duty officer, the most junior detective constable on the team, arrived half an hour later. He took one look at Mr Headless and woke his governor. With that, the whole pomp and majesty that is a Metropolitan Police murder investigation descended on the 25 metres of open cobbles between the church portico and the market building. The pathologist arrived to certify death, make a preliminary assessment of the cause, and cart the body away for its postmortem. There was a short delay while they found a big enough evidence bag for the head. The forensic teams turned up mop-handed and, to prove that they were the important ones, demanded that the secure perimeter be extended to include the whole west end of the piazza. To do this... They needed more uniforms at the scene. So the DCI, who was senior investigating officer, called up Charing Cross Nick and asked if they had any to spare. The shift commander, upon hearing the magic word, Overtime, marched into the section house and volunteered everyone out of their nice warm beds. Thus, the secure perimeter was expanded. Searches were made, junior detectives sent off on mysterious errands and finally, at just after five o'clock, it all ground to a halt. The body was gone, the detectives had left, and the forensic people unanimously agreed that there was nothing more that could be done until dawn, which was three hours away. Until then, they needed a couple of mugs to guard the crime scene until shift change. Which is how I came to be standing around Covent Garden in a freezing wind at six o'clock in the morning, and why it was me that met the ghost. Sometimes I wonder whether, if I'd been the one that went for the coffee and not Leslie May, my life would have been much less interesting, and certainly much less dangerous. Could it have been anyone, or was it destiny?